Live from Your Mind Productions presents On the Threshold. Episode 2 Sand Castles of Memory. Welcome back to the Glazer Files. Last episode, I made a passing, dismissive reference to the lost time phenomenon, most commonly associated with tales from those who claim to have been abducted by aliens. Well, the universe seems to have a sense of humor. You see, after that episode, I was contacted by a psychiatrist we'll call Dr. Abby Applegate. Her emails mostly speak for themselves, but with her permission, I've compiled them and edited them for clarity. Like Dr. Applegate, all names have been changed and identifying details scrubbed to preserve their anonymity. Mr. Glazer, I was forwarded your podcast by a friend of mine and believe that my doctoral research may help shed some light on your friend Matthew's experience. I work as a clinical psychiatrist. With the outbreak, all of my sessions were migrated online or, in a few cases, cancelled. So, like many others, I had considerably more time home alone. I got an early start on what these days they call hashtag quarantining. Hmm. I say these days as if there was a gulf of years between when I started it and when the term came into vogue, but it only feels that way. Once I finished organizing all the living areas, I had only the closets left, and in one of those closets was where I found a box that I didn't recognize. When I opened it, I found that it contained hard copy files and a flash drive from my old graduate student days. Aside from statistical analysis and theoretical musings, most of it was from dozens of surveys, written accounts, and semi-structured interviews that I had apparently collected during the early part of my graduate student program of those who had experienced lost time. What dating I could find established the documents as having been created and collected between 2010 and 2012. I assumed that most of the work was mine because some of the written notes were in my handwriting and had my signature. Yet I can only assume this because I had no memory of conducting any of this research. As I sat on the floor of the half-lit closet, I tried to recall anything about these studies, but it was like a gaping hole in my mental record of my existence. Then I tried to remember anything from the entire five years of my life during my PhD program, but again, 
there was nothing. This wasn't just the case of the overstressed grad student blocking out the whirlwind of frenzied activity that comes with long hours and ever-looming deadlines. I couldn't remember anything outside of my studies either. Several of my friends' weddings, my father's death, memorable life events that I knew had happened were entirely blank spots. Even day-to-day -day things, such as what my office or classrooms or apartment looked like, the faces or names of colleagues or professors, all gone. I pulled up my social media posts from those years to see if they might trigger any memories. It was like seeing photos of a stranger impersonating me. A doppelganger smiling back at me as she stood with some people I knew from before or after, and some people who must have been friends or colleagues of the woman in this picture, but who were entirely unknown to me in the present. The photos of the campus and the apartment where I'd spent half a decade prompted none of the recognition or reflexive emotional responses they should have in me. They were like any complete stranger's photo album. And how, how could I have entirely forgotten that I'd adopted a cat named Adam from a shelter, doted upon him for years, posting photo after photo, and then buried him when his medical complications overwhelmed him? How could staring at this cat I'd apparently deeply loved for so long now elicit not even the slightest reaction or memory from me at all. I called several friends of mine to subtly reality check myself. Of course, now I realize that now I couldn't remember how I met several of them. We reminisced about old times that were perfectly real to them, at least, such as our regular nighttime races climbing to the roof of the library. But these had no place in my recollection. I don't think any of them caught on that I was just imitating the nostalgia that they clearly felt, so at least that's something. The connection between my own state and that of my apparent research subjects wasn't lost on me, but I compartmentalized that as I sought comfort in a defined self-diagnosis. I pulled up my DSM-5 and a few other sources to brush up on amnesia. My memories of starting my clinic position after graduation and my undergraduate days seemed intact, which meant that if it was organically arising, the inciting trauma, that is to say the brain damage, must have occurred shortly after the end of my PhD program. That assumed that it wasn't a localized dissociative amnesia, which is generally associated with extremely traumatic events. And while grad programs are notoriously stressful, I doubted that my experience was on par with the intense violence or abuse normally involved in such cases. I'd need to check my medical records to verify whether I had been hospitalized for head trauma during the time. But for now, I could tell myself that I had a diagnostic theory. So, at 2 a.m., I went to sleep. That's when the dream started. 
I'm in a windowless office, writing commentary on files late into the evening. The doorknob turns as if someone is trying to get in, but it's locked. Who is it? I call, thinking it's odd that there's someone else here at this hour. It's you, comes the reply. What are you doing in my office? But this is my office, I protest. Silence before I hear the sound of footsteps and more silence. With some mix of curiosity and indignation, I leap up and pull open the door. I see a darkened hallway in an empty office block with muffled footsteps receding. When I turn back to my office, I instead see more of the hallway. And so I start walking, looking for my office or an exit. But all I find is row upon row of dark, windowless halls intermixed with nondescript cubicle farms. Occasionally, I think I hear voices or movement, but when I follow them, I find only more empty room. Eventually, I see a light emerging from beneath the closed door, as if someone is there. Then I recognize my name on the door plate and realize that I've finally found my way back. But when I try the handle, it won't turn. Who is it? Asks a voice from inside, the one I'd heard before. It's you, I say in surprise. What are you doing in my office? But this is my office, she says. At this point, I realize what has happened, and I run, for reasons that only make sense to my dream self. The rest of the dream is returning once more to the dismal labyrinth of dark halls. I can't be sure, but I think the dream repeated several times just in the first night, leaving me feeling fatigued the next day. I put off any further cleaning or finding hospital records and try to just focus on my patients. When the dreams continued to occur the next two nights, I knew I had a problem. It seemed like it happened so many times each evening that I wondered if I was ever dreaming about anything else, or if those endless halls had devoured all of my REM sleep. I knew it was affecting my work when two patients asked me if I was feeling okay. I decided to try lucid dreaming, thinking that if I could gain control and disrupt the cycle, I might identify the underlying cause of the dreams and resolve them. Thus, I set myself a mental reminder to realize when I was dreaming if I heard my doorknob turning and saw that I was back in that same dream office. That part, at least, worked. When I hear the rattling, 
I don't ask any questions. I simply get up to courteously let myself in, thinking that we could have a friendly conversation about what is happening. But I am not there. The door opens to what I can only describe as a roiling sea of clouds, like what one might see outside an airplane window during a thunderstorm. But the clouds' colors are wrong, a turbulent swirl of reds, purples, and greens. And in the thunderclaps, I hear voices. Something moves beneath the clouds in the distance, like a shark stirring the surface of the water above it as it pursues its prey. I crawl upon an organic-seeming lattice, desperately clinging to it for fear of falling into the clouds, while forcing myself forward for fear of what is below them, drawing ever closer. In subsequent dreams, I attempt to use lucid dreaming to remove or alter the unseen entity, but it is entirely resistant to my influence, as is the cloudscape as a whole, and no amount of rational self-reassurance that it is a dream calms the primordial terror I feel, my heart pounding in my chest so hard I very much fear it will give out. My waking life continued to deteriorate as fatigue turned to exhaustion. I developed chronic headaches so agonizing that I've had to prematurely end sessions with clients. I suspect that the latter is only partially due to sleep deprivation, but is the result of high stress reactions to the dreams themselves and the entity within them. I determined that I only fall into the cloudscape when I diverge from the original dream's cyclical script, that is, when I attempt to change the conversation at either side of the door. As dispiriting as wandering the empty halls is, they are preferable to being chased by the entity. So I submit to the dreary, predictable confines of a misleading conversation with myself and roaming the dark offices. With continued practice in lucid dreamings, I'm even able to lighten these up somewhat, but I can still not actually see anyone else even when the voices sound like they're coming from the very next room. For perhaps a week, this works, and my headaches recede. But then I start hearing it in the hallways, distantly at first, an occasional rumbling just at the edge of perception. Every night since then, it draws nearer. I've started noticing the floorboards warping like water displaced in the wake of a massive beast rising to the surface. This becomes more pronounced each time I return. I've started hearing its approach even awake now, 
or as awake as I ever get between when I attempt to stave off sleep inevitably fail. I know the root of all this must have something to do with my research I can't remember in grad school. The sudden onset of the nightmares immediately after my rediscovery cannot be coincidental, nor can a similarity between my own substantial memory loss and that of the people I was studying. I will happily put all of the files from my box at your disposal and pay whatever fee you charge to find out what happened and how to survive whatever this is. After some background investigation to verify Dr. Applegate's identity and credentials, I agreed to look into her research. Firstly, we found no evidence that she had ever been treated for head trauma, and she had doubts that she would have been able to survive otherwise unhindered from any such force necessary to cause such targeted memory loss without treatment. Thus, we ruled that out as a probable cause. Combing through her social media posts and the Wayback Machine's imaging of the university's psych department pages, I determined that the likely leader of the project about lost time was someone I'll call Dr. Bethany Bridger, whose published work primarily focuses upon memory, naturally. Starting around 2010, Dr. Bridger's publication output seems to have declined, confined mostly to signing her name to papers by her graduate students, which suggests that her research focus was primarily upon this ongoing research project. But strangely, I haven't been able to find any publications related to the project itself, which is quite surprising, as oblique references in various sources suggest that at least eight different graduate students were involved with it, and one would assume that they would expect something to show for it to benefit their future careers. In summer 2016, Dr. Bridger seems to simply vanish. Not only is she removed from the university's faculty listing and entirely stops all publication, but I can find no record of her transferring to another university or taking a position in either the private or public sector. Furthermore, while I had been able to establish an address history for the previous 10 years, her rent lapses that summer and I have thus far been unable to determine her residence since then. That sort of evasion is no small feat. Even from a distance, I've tracked down the addresses of many who try to live off the grid, regardless of their changing names, identities, and gender presentations. Yet, her sudden departure seems to have garnered no mention in any university or local media coverage. No obituaries, no fond words for departing faculty, no mentions of disciplinary hearings, no discussions of a mysterious disappearance, nothing. It's as if she was not only erased from existence, but so was every connection she'd had with the rest of humanity. Except perhaps one, which I'm currently looking into. I'll continue to delve into that investigation, as well as the contents of the files on lost time cases next episode. 
On a more positive note, Dr. Applegate reports that she's managed to reduce the frequency and intensity of her dreams through pharmacological methods, partially inspired by Dr. Bridger's published research. She says that this seems to have slowed the advance of what she calls the entity, allowing her more restful sleep for the moment, but the entity is still present, merely delayed. Less positively, I've been able to find some potentially corroborating evidence of Dr. Applegate's concerns that the phenomena she reports experiencing may be dangerous. At Dr. Applegate's request, I've refrained from directly contacting other participants in the project for fear that it might similarly put them at risk. But, in the age of easily accessible public records and social media, this is hardly a hindrance to investigation. One of the other grad students I've tied to the project was a neurologist I'll call Brendan. In February 2018, Brendan appears to have died of a stroke at the improbably young age of 26. Or at least that's the best fitting cause that the coroners could come up with. The person on record reporting the death seems to have been a cashier at a local pharmacy whom I am currently working to contact. But what worries me is that just two weeks before his untimely death, he posted on a dream interpretation subreddit, asking for help with recurring nightmares of being, quote, hunted by an unseen leviathan from below. Threshold is produced and distributed by Live From Your Mind Productions under an attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. This episode was written and performed by Gregory Moss. Thank you for listening. Part 2 I didn't use these stairs very often. The banister was covered in red paint, harshly flecked and scarred to reveal their pale wooden innards. The photographs on the walls showed family gatherings I didn't recall. When were those two ever smiling together? And the city's skyline hung upside down. The clawing became clearer as I climbed the bedroom. The bed was unmade, torn by many a night staring at the ceiling. The threadbare clothes and the gaping closet stared back at 